This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to Trumpet Hour this last weekend of winter 2023. I'm Philip Nice and I'm with some of the staff writers of the Philadelphia Trumpet here in studio and over our connection with our office in England. We're here to bring you a digest of the most important news of the week. In studio are Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. Andrew Miller. Hello. And in our studio in Britain are Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And Mihailo Zekic. Good to be here. Many of our listeners remember the financial crisis of 2008, and many of us are remembering it much more vividly this week. For this story, which only matters to you if you use money, we will hear from Andrew Miller. This has been a devastating week for American banking and finance. Last Friday, Silicon Valley Bank was taken over by the U.S. government, and then Signature Bank followed Sue on Sunday. And we're not even sure that these are going to be the last two banks uh, to go down. Uh, Joe Biden's come in and said that the uh, U.S. government is going to be bailing out these banks, or um, I think he used a different word than bailout because he's emphasizing that we're hoping to not have to spend U.S. taxpayer money. Apparently, there's a government fund someplace that they actually have $125 billion worth of money they've collected from banks and fees just for this purpose in case this happens. So as long as the the, the bailout funds aren't in excess of $125 billion, the uh, the government says they should be able to take care of this particular case, but uh, there's a lot of people <laughs> still getting nervous as to be like, well, uh, will it be more than 125 billion, or will these even be the last two to go down? Two banks definitely have gone down. I have not um, before this week. I hadn't really heard of Silicon Valley Bank uh, or Signature Bank yet. These are the second and third biggest bank failures in U.S. history. That is, that's major news. How did this happen? And why is, if, if there is this, you know, bailout fund, uh, just sitting around waiting to bail out (laughs) Silicon Valley bank and signature bank, um, is this a big deal? It is definitely uh, a big deal. And with these two banks in particular, my understanding is that they, uh, they were investing a lot in, uh, in treasuries. And then when um, rising Fed rates pushed down the value of the earlier treasuries, it just pushed it into a bad financial situation. It's also true that these two particular banks just more generally were really kind of anomalies in that um, they were very woke banks. <laughs> uh, I think one of them had refused to do business with Donald Trump and maybe even uh, some of his supporters. Uh, they're definitely into like the diversity, affirmative action uh, agenda. Uh, I've, I've even heard and, and I think seen a couple pictures of like some of like the upper management uh, where it's like a man dressed as uh a woman, so definitely not the type of person I, I want to be sitting across from when I'm going to my bank for a mortgage application or a car loan or, or something like that. 
So uh, you pointed out to me this uh, article, our financial 9-11 was prophesied. I mean, what a what a title on that. Tell us about that article and the significance, uh, the, the broader significance of this financial crisis. Yeah, well, I guess I'll talk about the article first and then just kind of go into like <laughs> where these where these things could be leading, uh, because that article, it's actually a chapter in our book. He was right. Uh, which highlights what the Bible says about America's financial collapse. And in the Bible, uh, more generally, there's verses in uh, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, the blessings and cursings chapter about the descendants of ancient Israel is like you will lend to foreigners and they won't lend to you and crop failures and just more general prophecies about debt and bad economic things happening. Uh, but on a more specific level, the late Herbert W. Armstrong um, had what our, uh, made what our editor-in-chief, Gerald Floyd, calls a personal prophecy, uh, a prophecy that's not actually explicitly in the Bible, but based on other Bible prophecies around it. <laughs> it's very likely true. Uh, and that's the case is that looking at these prophecies about uh, a resurrected Holy Roman Empire invading the United States and acknowledging the reality of like how much more powerful the United States is than uh, the European Union at the time, uh, could see that there's going to have to be a major geopolitical realignment happening here, uh, and really thought that a banking crisis would be um, the most likely way that you could basically like flip over the monopoly board uh, just totally reset the world's economy, <laughs> uh, build up from <laughs> ground zero again with a new world superpower. And uh, like I said, so when you're seeing something like these, like you have the second and third biggest bank in America go down, uh, I mean, the U.S. government has the money set aside to absorb those failures. But if this spreads... Uh, <laughs> depending on how far it spreads. I mean, you could be dealing with like an end of Western civilization type scenario uh, that could uh, could be leading to the rise of new superpowers. I actually think uh, what kind of like shocked me or scared me more than uh, more than just the bank news was uh, uh, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink's uh, analysis of it. And uh, Larry Fink, he basically owns like the United States or something like that or not <laughs> him, not personally, but BlackRock, when you look at like BlackRock statistics, it's like they, they own a good sized chunk of this America. Is true. This is true. And he's a, he's a liberal man, but he, he's um, unlike the liberal crossdressers at signature bank. He, he does understand finance and, uh, and he didn't focus in on the woke things happening or that they bought this bond wrong or they bought that bond wrong, where he, uh, he gave a letter to investors on Wednesday where he said, basically, he said, since the 2008 economic crisis, uh, America's been in quantitative easing mode, just printing money to bail out, uh, bail out banks. Uh, and that shifted into hyperdrive during the COVID crisis. And so he very correctly said, he said, that's your root cause of inflation is all this money America's been printing for the past, since 2008. Um, he said, now the Federal Reserve's raising interest rates um, in order to combat the inflation crisis, and that's making it more expensive for people to borrow money, uh, pushing banks like, uh, like Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank uh, 
out of the out of the market, but definitely uh, has the potential to push many other banks out of the market. He actually used the phrase that I uh, alluded to at the beginning of the program is uh, where he asked, are the dominoes starting to fall? Means that like, okay, well, Silicon Valley Bank goes first, uh, Signature Bank goes second, but if you have another big bank goes third, now you're getting to the point where the U.S. government doesn't have the funds set aside for bailouts. They start needing to doing taxpayer bailouts. Uh, and then you get a fourth or a fifth bank, and then it kind of gets to the point is where it's ironic that the government's bailing out the banks because the government's the only financial institution in the United States like in a wor- with $31 trillion in debt in a worse financial position than the banks. The second and third biggest bank failures in U.S. history. Not a small story. Something to keep an eye on. Um, thank you, Mr. Miller, for that. You talked about a connection to Europe. And the state of the banks does not matter only if you use dollars. You also want to take note of this if you use euros. We'll hear why that is from Richard Palmer coming to us from England. Yes, I think there's two key ways that this impacts Europe. And the first is just this kind of idea of dominoes. You have American banks falling and European banks are very quickly in trouble. So right now, the second largest bank in Switzerland is fighting for its life. And like you, you I'd not heard really of SBB or Signature. I mean, I guess they'd been in the news because Signature canceled Donald Trump's accounts, but they, 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 they never really registered. I've heard of Credit Suisse. I read about Credit Suisse all the time. Uh, and so, you know, Andrew mentioned this prophecy from Mr. Armstrong about, and, and Mr. F- Mr. Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry is really focused on this as well, the way a banking crisis in America can spread to Europe. We saw that dramatically this week. These banks in America crashed that we haven't heard of, and then suddenly one of Europe's most significant banks is teetering. And this ha- th- this bank is too big to fail. It's so big it could drag Switzerland down with it. Uh, the Telegraph had an article this morning. It has been at peace for a thousand years. It is one of the most prosperous places in the world, and its financial system has always been famous for its stability, privacy, and discretion. If any country is a safe haven, it has always surely been Switzerland. But with Credit Suisse, one of its leading banks in turmoil, could Switzerland be bankrupted? We're asking that question now. Now, things have stabilized a little. Credit Suisse's uh, share price was down 30%. Uh, and this is its lowest ever level, not because of any direct connection to SVB. It's just people know that they're, that, that they're at risk. People are worried about banks. Credit Suisse is the first one that they worry about. And the central bank stepped in with, uh, I think, around 50 billion euros, $50 billion-ish lifeline. And that seems to have stabilized things. So we'll have to wait and see how this plays out. But certainly you can see a dramatic example of how quickly that prophecy Uh, that Andrew spoke about could happen. But I think, I don't think we've really hit yet on the biggest part of this whole story in America, in Europe, everywhere. And that is America's relationships, relationship with its banks just fundamentally changed. I wonder, I, I don't know, it's early days yet. I wonder if this will be seen as the biggest step towards socialism that America has ever taken or something on that magnitude where the Fed stepped in and said, we are covering all depositors. You know, normally if a banks pay into a federal deposit insurance scheme, if they go bust, any money that you have in that bank under $250,000 uh, 
get you you get that back from the government if it's over that you lose it and uh that they did something radically different this time where they stepped in and, and this was the bailout andrew talked about that all deposits are guaranteed you mean you might have five million in the bank account that's fine the government's going to step in and and cover that and there's not been much discussion about this you know this was just something the government did i think there was a conference call with congress but not a huge amount of democratic oversight. It was just rushed through over a weekend. But this has far-reaching ramifications. You know, you had a former deputy director of the Fed talking about how this is putting us on the road to privatizing the banking system. This is almost, or oh, 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 it's not privatizing, the other way around, I guess, state ownership of the banks, state run of the banks. I mean, it is a huge step in that direction because to be where we are, if the government, if the government is doing this, this puts us in an unsustainable halfway house where banks take risks, but they do not pay under this zero consequences for those. If I'm an, if I have half a million dollars to stick in a bank account at the moment, my incentive is to put it in the riskiest bank account out there because I get the rewards. And if the bank goes bust, the U.S. government gives it back. You're incentivizing risk take. The only way then to stop this being a horrible mess is to have massive regulation of the banking system. And that, I suspect, was the was the end game from the start with this decision. So you've opening the door now to a complete fundamental change in how the U.S. banking system works. You've got uh, the bailout being done in such a way that funnels people from small banks to big banks, uh, which if the government then has much more control on the banking system, we're already seeing a government that wants to know about your PayPal trans, you, you know, your, the money you paid to your friend if it's more than 600 bucks. Now they're getting heavily and this would give them the opening to get really heavily involved in people's lives. Uh, it's opening the door to a major step towards socialism. And this is something that Europe even is, 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 is apparently livid about because Europe and the United States have very deliberately over the last you know, after the 2008 banking crisis, they sat down and they worked out a, a, a clear plan on this is how we deal with bailouts. And it's all very step by step and it's very organized and they have all of the details. And then the U.S. regulators, the first banking crisis they do, throws that completely out the window and does something radically different. And the European the European experts like, why? What what were all these discussions for if we're just going to throw that out the window? And now they're in a tough position. And this because is America imagine, where we're supposed to be free market. You know, yeah. you're, you're supposed to uh, take on your own risk and get your own rewards and, and face your own consequences for your own decisions. And here we are doing the exact opposite and, and, and uh, exceeding Europe in socialistic principles. Well, and, and exceeding Europe in how help you know, how you support your banks, which that's that that's what they're worried about. I think is if you're a big businessman, with a few million and you're trying to decide, do I put it in Bank of America or Deutsche Bank? You put it in Bank of America because they're going to guarantee those deposits while Deutsche Bank won't. Now, in real life, there's a lot more complications in that decision. But still, this tilts the playing field in America's favor in a way that Europe just can't really compete with because Italy can't. I mean, nobody's going to trust an Italian government guarantee of its banks or anything like that. And then I think this idea of okay everybody assumes america the american government stands behind its bank accounts but america hasn't publicly stated it that is literally what caused the euro crisis where everybody assumed germany would stand behind greece but germany had never actually stated it and then push came to shove and oh they didn't and it caused this cascade of failures as everyone suddenly had to reevaluate all of their assumptions 
So we've, I think you've seen this setting the American economy up for a government takeover for a, a massive crash. And then you can also see how this could very it puts Europe in a tough position now. It's turning them against America now. This is the American-led financial system. Uh, and you can see how any crisis can quickly spread to that. It is the perfect ingredient for the fulfillment of that prophecy that Andrew spoke about, that, uh, that you have a banking crisis in Europe rapidly leads to Europe uniting and at the same time turns them against the United States. So when you see banks in the headlines, don't tune them out. Watch for how much control is the government getting in this situation? How is it making use of the crisis to get more control? And watch Europe. It's, it's something you, you wouldn't normally do when you see an American banking uh, crisis. Watch Europe. Watch how it responds. Thank you, Mr. Palmer, for that. Major news in the U.S. and European banking systems that can affect all of us. But in this program, as you know, we always watch the Middle East. And there is major, major news coming out of the Middle East this week. To learn more about it, we'll turn to Mihailo Zekic. Yeah, so technically it was actually last week. Yeah, um, you may Our listeners may remember on last uh, week's program, we talked about Saudi Arabia and Israel making potential uh, diplomatic deals. Well, Israel's not the only country that Saudi Arabia has been making overtures to. Um, the day we recorded the program on March 10th, Saudi Arabia and of all countries, Iran, announced that they were going to start normalization of diplomatic relations themselves. Now, for some of our listeners that may not be as familiar, Saudi Arabia and Iran haven't had diplomatic relations for about seven years. They're bitter rivals. They're both trying to see who can be the, the top dog in the Middle East in the Muslim world. They back opposing sides in different proxy wars and different uh, theaters of conflict in the Middle East. So this announcement was seen as a bit of a, a shock to a lot of people. They're going to be exchanging uh, ambassadors in the near future. There's potential for Saudi uh, investment inside Iran. Equally surprising was who mediated the agreement. Normally, for a lot of these deals, America is the go-to international mediator for a lot of these situations. Europe sometimes involves itself. This time, it was uh, a newcomer. It's China. Um, the actual announcement itself was announced by Saudi and Iranian representatives in Beijing. So this represents both an interesting turn in Saudi relations uh, or Saudi-Iranian relations and in China's increasing involvement in the Middle East. So Saudi Arabia, we've talked about it separating from the United States, now reconciling with its major rival, Iran, working with China, uh, not to mention looking at a deal with Israel, pursuing a nuclear program, and uh, and talking openly about abandoning the, the petrodollar, Major, major things are happening last week and this week in in Saudi Arabia. Where is this? Where is this leading us to? Well, for longtime listeners of the program, they may know of us referring to two end time blocks in the Middle East. One described in Daniel eleven talks about Iran and its allies, and one in Psalm eighty three talks about Germany and its allies. And in that case, Saudi Arabia is in that block. It's not in Iran's block. So people may look at this and think, wait a minute, I thought that you guys said that Iran and Saudi Arabia aren't going to be friends. And that's the thing. They're they're not. All the old quarrels that they still have, um, 
backing, say, opposing sides in Yemen, uh, influence in Persian Gulf countries like Bahrain, those are still there. Uh, Yemen's a bit of an interesting case. We'll take a look at that if we have time. But it's basically just going back to where relations were seven years ago, and relations seven years ago weren't that great either. Now, America has been pretty shall we say, non-committal when it comes to Saudi security, and that's, we talked about that on last week's uh, program as well. And this deal with Iran must be interpreted with that context. There's no way Saudi Arabia would have made this deal with its rival, which it doesn't trust, which it knows is untrustworthy, which it knows it still wants to be the top dog, if it thought that its traditional backer, the United States, was going to do something about an expansionist Iran to back Saudi Arabia with different uh, uh, circumstances that have been going on, like the defense, uh, vacillating defense commitments. Saudi Arabia knows America is not going to have its back. China, meanwhile, it's ever energy hungry. It constant, it is a constant uh, big market for fossil fuels from the Middle East. is a big trade partner of both Iran and Saudi Arabia. It's sort of seen as a natural bridge between the two, and the Saudis and the Chinese have good relations. If Iran starts acting up, the Saudis perhaps could petition to China, and the Chinese are probably one of the few world powers the Iranians would listen to because they have a good relationship with them as well. So in that sense, it's more of Saudi Arabia trying to find maybe a way through the back door to try and contain Iran. As regards to Yemen, it's a bit of an interesting thing. Um, the Iranians back the Houthi rebels in Yemen, which are fighting against the government there as well as the Saudis. The Saudis uh, are inv uh, involving themselves militarily. And according to sources, according to a news report that came out this week, um, Iran agreed to halt its uh, covert shipment of weapons to the Houthi rebels in Yemen. Um, Iran has never actually acknowledged that it does it, but according to certain sources, which the Wall Street Journal uh, refuses to uh, name, as it usually does, uh, that this is going to stop. And conceivably, the only reason the Iranians would be doing this is if the Saudis, in turn, agreed to stop some of their airstrikes or some of their involvement as well. So Mr. Fleur, our editor-in-chief, Mr. Fleur, has pointed to Yemen being a crucial place for Iran's influence to seep in. He's written a booklet about that, Germany's Secret Strategy she did destroy Iran. And this deal may end up handing Iran, perhaps in a backhanded way, control of Yemen. It sits on the Bab el-Mandeb Strait, a hugely important seagate. And this could be a major uh, increase of Iran's power. So with everything flying around, all these, all these developments, things changing, major uh, alliances or pseudo-alliances uh, in the process of shifting, what is the one thing that Trumpet Hour listeners can look for to emerge from all of this sooner or later? Um, Saudi Arabia to break with America and to join Germany. It hasn't joined, uh, obviously Europe isn't in the picture as of yet, but China is a newcomer to uh, Middle Eastern affairs. Saudi Arabia is, by reaching out to them, are clearly looking for allies other than America, and it's only a matter of time before when they finally find an ally they like, and that'll be Germany. Saudi Arabia in the news, the U.S. in the news, Iran in the news, China in the news, even Israel in the news, and yet Trumpet Hour advises you to watch for Germany to be in the news in a major way in relation to Saudi Arabia. Thank you, Mr. Zekic. Keep watching the Middle East for us. 
The war in Ukraine was a major focus for us last week. We'll get an update on that now from Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, Russia's attempt to conquer the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut is intensifying, and Russia is grinding very slightly and very slowly forward. The, uh, the Ukrainian military still holds the city center, but it's hard to say you know, how long they'll be able to hold that. But this is the longest running and the bloodiest battle since the war began, and the fighting there is just raging more than ever. Uh, the Ukrainians say that the reason why they're holding their ground here, even at great costs, is mainly to degrade Russia's ability to launch future offensives in the months ahead. But there are more and more analysts who think that Ukraine very well may soon decide to retreat to new lines, just kind of a few clicks to the West. Uh, this will be painful for Ukraine since Bakhmut has become just such a, you know, an enduring symbol of Ukraine's ability to resist even Russia's most concentrated forces. But the thinking is that this would actually pay big dividends for Ukraine because if they fall back, then the Russians would be forced to attack over open fields, just like what we've seen in uh, the city of Volodar over, over the last few weeks, or the, or the region of Volodar. Um, in Volodar, since the Russians have no cover, and since Ukraine previously mined the area that the Russians have to cross, Russian losses are around 7 to 1 against Ukraine's losses. So a pretty stunning ratio. Wow. But compare that to Bakhmut right now. The Bakhmut battle has become one of close urban combat. And in close urban combat, the defenders' losses start to reach the level of the attackers' losses. Right now, it's about two Russians killed for every Ukrainian. So you can see why it would be sensible in some ways for Ukraine to recreate, retreat from this two-to-one Bakhmut battle to instead create those seven-to-one conditions. So Ukraine has uh, motivation to, to fall back. Uh, what, what does Russia gain from taking this city? Yeah, that's a, that's a big part of this, this equation. And I think that a, a large part of it is propaganda. You know, just as kind of a propaganda coup. Right now, the Russians are becoming more dissatisfied with the war effort. They haven't really had a big win for months, um, at least not a considerable one. And as we've covered on the show several times back in September and October, Russia has actually had many large-scale retreats. So if they're able to take this city that has been so prominently discussed on both sides, that would really give the Kremlin something to just kind of uphold to the Russian people to hopefully reinvigorate them a bit. Um, and then taking Bakhmut would also help Russia in a strategic way. Apparently, it would be vital for improving some of their logistics options and resupply options in the east there. Um, and of course, it would bring Russia closer to its goal of taking Sloviansk and Krematorsk uh, further to the west. Those are both much closer to the border of the Donbass region, which, you know, that's what Vladimir Putin has told his forces to secure. So it's hard to say if in the next few days or weeks, we'll see some kind of a sea change in Bakhmut. It, it, really, it's looked for months like something would shake loose there. Um, but the status quo so far has held, and, and we can't really say for sure, but it's definitely a place to keep a close eye on. Is the situation now likely to prolong the war? I think that the situation now, the status quo, is likely to degrade both sides pretty considerably. Like if you're talking about a two-to-one meat grinder, it's, it's not really asymmetrical um, just because Russia has far more forces than Ukraine has. So two-to-one is unsustainable for Ukraine. Um, so I, I think in some ways that could make them both, both more willing to seek some kind of a, some kind of a deal. 
You also mentioned uh, earlier Russia's uh, plan to recruit 400,000 uh, new recruits into its army. It looks like uh, it's showing no signs of, of stopping. Um, tell us a little bit about that and then where our readers can look for more information. Sure, yes. Yeah, at the same time that we see this fighting in Bakhmut intensify, we're seeing Russia take steps to just dig into the war for the long haul. This week, as you said, there were reports from the Russian Ministry of Defense. Uh, they've initiated plans to recruit 400,000 more professional soldiers to the Russian army. That's starting on April 1st. Um, it's going to be quite a slow process, but eventually it will bring 400,000 new soldiers. So quite an eye-popping number. And, you know, we just talked about how the Ukrainians right now are trying to hold their ground largely because they want to attrit Russia's military ability and degrade its ability to launch further offensives. But if there are 400,000 new Russians headed you know, to the battlefields, it's hard to see how that Ukrainian plan will go as Ukraine hopes it will. Um, but as for the, the big picture here, the, the prophetic significance, um, Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry wrote an article last February, not even a week after Russia expanded this attack on Ukraine into this full-scale war. It's called Bible Prophecy Comes Alive in Ukraine. And he mentions in there that he's actually been sounding the alarm about Putin's, you know, bellicosity and belligerence for well over a decade, closer to two. And he explains that Bible prophecy is the reason why he has been issuing this warning. He, he goes through several Bible passages in this article, and the one he devotes the most space to is Ezekiel 38. It's mainly about a personality named the Prince of Russia. Um, and Mr. Flurry identifies this man as Vladimir Putin. So this, this article, I think, will help any listener to see that Putin will soon be leading wars that are even more destructive than what it's waging right now. So it's an important read for uh, anyone who would like to understand all of this. Bible prophecy comes alive in Ukraine. Look for that on thetrumpet.com, an article by the editor-in-chief, Gerald Flurry. Mr. Flurry is also working on a major story on Bible prophecy in Ukraine for the next edition of the, uh, the print edition of the Philadelphia Trumpet. So if you haven't subscribed to that, go to thetrumpet.com. Make sure you're subscribed to the Philadelphia Trumpet. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, a shipment, a large shipment to Russia from China labeled hunting rifles. The streets of Paris are burning. What is happening in Tunisia and why you should take note. And injury added to insult, added to injury, added to insult. A new revelation about the relationship between the United States government and the Chinese government, what they were doing in Wuhan, and who paid for it, and how many times. Stay with us. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. China, the rising power, has been busy not only brokering deals in the Middle East, but also strengthening its alliance with Russia. We learned more about that this week. Mr. Jacques, tell us more. Sure, yes. There was a notable report from Politico yesterday. Uh, they obtained trade and customs data showing that Chinese companies have been sending various Russian entities all kinds of weapons. Um, there are 1,000 assault rifles 
and also large quantities of drone components, and then about 12 tons worth of Chinese body armor that have all crossed the border into Russia um, since the war broke out back in February of 2022. So the quantities of rifles are not enormous. It's only a thousand, and they are officially labeled as hunting weapons. And, you know, this could just be civilian purchases. But we also have to keep in mind that these figures are just what has been discovered in this particular tranche of customs data. You know, the the true numbers may be much larger. And then with the body armor, with 12 tons of armor, that certainly is a significant quantity. Um, Much of the equipment has been routed through Turkey or the UAE, apparently to obscure its, you know, its true origin. And this is a first in some notable ways. I'll, I'll just read one section here from the Politico report. It says... It is the first confirmation that China is sending rifles and body armor to Russian companies and shows that drones and drone parts are still being sent despite promises from at least one Chinese company that said it would suspend business in Russia and Ukraine to ensure its products did not aid the war effort. So, you know, this isn't the Chinese government shipping this, just Chinese companies. One of the companies, though, is intimately connected to the Chinese government and really in the Chinese kind of political and economic model the government maintains tight control, or at least the potential for it, over all Chinese businesses and uses them as an arm of the the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. So it's it's really a bombshell report in some ways, and I think that we should expect more and more direct Chinese support for Russia's war, even including more lethal aid going forward. So as you say, a clue showing us, uh, reminding us of that that alliance between Russia and China. There's also another uh, development development linking those two countries. Tell us about that. Sure, yeah. Well, uh, Chinese leader Xi Jinping, he has just clinched his third term as president. That was a week ago today. That's unprecedented in China, and it shows that he is positioned to rule for as long as he lives. And then we learned just today that as one of his first moves in this newly solidified position, he'll be traveling to Moscow to meet with Vladimir Putin. Uh, This trip is planned for March 21st, to the 23rd. And of course, this comes while Putin's Russia is grinding on with that with that war, dictatorial Russia using its military power to illegally seize territory, um, and even children, you know, from a sovereign democracy. So with this visit, Xi Jinping is lending legitimacy to all of that Russian expansionism. He's essentially saying sovereign democracies need to be ready in this new shifting world order to bow down to their much larger dictatorial neighbors. And of course, you can see parallels with what you could call China's Ukraine, uh, Taiwan. You know, Xi Jinping wants that sovereign democracy to bow to dictatorial China. So it's no surprise that he would be legitimizing Russia's land grab. Uh, But this visit really will give Putin kind of a diplomatic shot in the arm. Western leaders have been trying to isolate him over the war, trying to make him appear a pariah. But this visit shows that uh, despite those efforts, Russia is far from isolated. A prince of Russia, a an alliance between these two great powers, Russia and China, in the Bible. Prince of Russia, in the Bible. Russia and China, in the Bible. Go to thetrumpet.com, go to the library, and look for our booklets on the Prince of Russia and Russia and China in Prophecy. Prove it for yourself. If you've been watching the news in the evenings or online, you've probably seen vivid images from the streets of Paris and other cities in France. Mr. Palmer, what is going on in France? The usual. 
<laughs> no, it's uh, it's raining in England. The Pope is Catholic. There are protests in France. They're <laughs> engaging in their their national sport. But these are especially big, and I, there's an importance attached to them um, as well. So one of the key stories that a lot of people have been watching from France for months now is can they reform their pension system? It is completely unsustainable. Uh, at the moment, the retirement age is 62. They want to aid, rain, uh, raise that to 64. Now, by comparison, I believe it's around uh, 67 in the US. The UK is in the process of raising that to 67. So this is still a, a low retirement age by the standards of other developed countries. The French don't want to give that up. And, and basically what happened over the last couple of days, there's an article of the French Constitution, Article 49.3, that gives the executive the ability to push things through without parliamentary consent uh, on certain spending issues. And they said they weren't going to do this. And they said they wanted democratic support for for this measure, yada, yada, yada. With the vote minutes away, they realized, oh, we don't think we have the votes. So they pulled it from the vote and pushed it through with 49.3, what they said exactly that they weren't going to do. And uh, the scenes from the uh, the French National Assembly, the, you, know, you, you have opposition MPs standing up singing Le Marseillaise and shouting shame and booing. And uh, so it's become a protest more than just uh, pensions, but then also about this perceived uh, lack of democracy. And so now there's there's the potential for a no confidence vote. That's something that goes along with 49.3, even maybe a referendum to try and overturn this. Uh, so you could have the French government fall over this issue. So these images on, on the news have been vivid, but are they prophetic? Yes, I think we talked in the first half about this banking crisis in Europe. And I think this absolutely ties into this, that you do have a lot of economies within Europe that have been unable to reform themselves and therefore have all kinds of institutions and systems that cannot last in the long run. Uh, but have been patched over temporarily. The French, pen, the French pension system is just one of those, and this has been a this has been a major issue for French politics for years. Unable to deal with this, and it's unsustainable. It's unaffordable. You know, none of us, no, nobody our age, is getting anything like the pension advertised right now, at the age advertised right now in any Western nation, and. So by refusing to even adjust this slightly, they're storing up trouble for themselves, probably for when the next crisis comes along. I think it's also just a, a points to Europe's political dysfunction at the moment. Something that we've said, you're going to see this dysfunction leading to a desire to get things done, to get something done. And you see this in France, even where I think Emmanuel Macron has tried to trade on. He calls himself Jupiter uh, and he's tried to kind of trade on this image of being a little Napoleon. Uh, he knows that there is a, a certain strongman appetite in France. There's a strongman appetite across all of Europe. And what we've said is watch for Germany for that strongman to come from. You're not going to see it emerge from France. I think we've seen part of why in the protests this week. But this inability to be able to do anything is going to lead to this rise of a strongman who bypasses some of the democratic system in the way that uh, that Macron kind of tried to do this week. And you can learn more about those prophecies in our uh, Trends article, Why the Trumpet Watches the Rise of a German Strongman. So we can see what is happening now and we know where it's leading. The, as Churchill said, the future, the in-between is imminent but obscure. But what we're looking for is not a French strongman, but a German strongman to rise over 
Germany, France, and the rest of Europe. There's another event that's been flying under the radar. You might have seen the protests in France, but you probably didn't see the developments in Tunisia. Mihailo Zekic has been monitoring those for us, and he brings us a story about Tunisia. Yes, so for our listeners that don't know where Tunisia is, it's a small country, former French colony in North Africa. It's uh, an Arab state. And it's a story that's gotten a lot of headway in a lot of different places, but uh, we haven't actually talked about it on this program yet, so I thought now's a good time as any. There was a bit development there. The Tunisian parliament had its opening session on Monday, and for the first time in the country's history, at least the country's democratic history, no uh, uh, international or local press were allowed to witness the event aside from state media. And this was a big deal because the current president of Tunisia, Kais Saeed, he came into power a few years ago, and he's been rapidly uh, basically doing things that are, are making people accuse him of being a dictator. He's uh, rewritten the constitution that gives him more power. Normally, parliament is supposed to have a lot more political power. Uh, he's attacking the media, attacking different political groups. This is uh, something a lot of people are interested in because you go back to 2011, the Arab Springs started in Tunisia. And Tunisia was considered the only, the spring's only success story of functioning democracy. That's going away. What the big deal with this is, is that one of Saeed's main targets, shall we say, happens to be one of the bigger uh, political parties there, Enata, which is originally tied to the Muslim Brotherhood decades back. Now, if you look at mainstream media, they'll say it's, a reformed, moderate Islamist party. That's an oxymoron if I've ever heard one. Um, and But they have technically been in government and they've gone out of government. They haven't turned Tunisia into Afghanistan. They're not the Taliban. But they still have these links to the Muslim Brotherhood and some figures in the party still have, uh, say, go to Muslim Brotherhood-sponsored conferences, have even links to Tunisia's uh, branch of Al-Qaeda. So while it may not get the same bad publicity that the Taliban or the IRGC have, they still have some pretty unsavory connections, and the media is painting them as these downtrodden freedom fighters that just want the democratic Tunisia. The exact same thing we saw happen in Egypt when the Arab Spring happened. People painted Hosni Mubarak as this horrible monster. The Muslim Brotherhood were these good Democrats. They get rid of Mubarak. Egypt turns into an Islamist uh, radical theocracy. And while the Bible may not have anything specifically to say about Tunisia, it has a lot to say about North Africa in general, about this kind of thing happening. We have a booklet, Libya and Ethiopia and Prophecy, that talks about that. And the opening uh, foreword or, or opening chapter is about what happened in Tunisia and how it relates to the rest of Africa. Da uh, prophecy we go to often, Daniel 11, verses 40 to 43, talk about the king of the south or Iran uh, and its allies, including countries like Egypt, Libya, Ethiopia, all these African countries that aren't in the Islamist bloc yet, but we expect them to be. And Antiochus administration in America, Barack Obama, he had a hand in getting rid of Mubarak by painting the Egyptian opposition as these rosy figures. We're starting to see the same thing happen in countries like Tunisia. And it's uh, this kind of thinking is not popular only in Tunisia, but in the rest of the continent. So we can expect more of these strongmen, but not Islamist strongmen, to be toppled, and Islamist governments riding that wave to take their place and ally with Iran in the region. 
Libya and Ethiopia in prophecy there at the trumpet.com. Is Libya in Bible prophecy? Is Ethiopia in Bible prophecy? Is that, in fact, what Daniel 11 means? Well, go to the trumpet.com slash library. Look for Libya and Ethiopia in prophecy. We're learning more about the origins of coronavirus and who paid for it. Andrew Miller has been watching this for months, Andrew, years. Uh, Andrew, give us the latest on this. Yeah, the good news this week is that U.S. taxpayers probably won't have to pay to bail out Silicon Valley Bank. And the bad news this week is that U.S. taxpayers did pay for gain-of-function research in Wuhan, China, and they paid for the same gain-of-function research twice. Uh, Senator Roger Marshall hired a former federal investigator to comb through 50,000 government documents uh, relating to the origins of COVID-19. And the investigator's conclusion was that the National Institute of Health, that's where Dr. Anthony Fauci worked, and the United States Agency for International Development both paid for the same medical supplies, equipment, travel expenses, and salaries used uh, in Wuhan, China for developing techniques to splice together bat and mouse coronaviruses. Uh, they're still trying to figure out exactly how much money was fraudulently given to Wuhan. The upper figure looks like it could be as much as $40 million dollars. Um, given to the Wuhan Institute of Virology in fraudulent payments. Uh, and so that's just a shocking number for, for what we know so far. As we know 600000 was given to Wuhan by the National Institute for Health, and $1.1 was given by the United States Agency for International Development. So that's almost $2 million in, like, legitimate payments. Um uh, and then it looks like this $40 million in like double payments may be uh, completely separate and on top of that. But uh, a lot of money uh, taking um, dollars from U.S. taxpayers, giving it to communist officials in Wuhan who were using technological techniques developed in, at the University of North Carolina to splice together two completely separate species of coronavirus, which in all likelihood probably is what leaked out of the lab and created the pandemic. Gain of function research being paid for by American taxpayers, being paid for again by American taxpayers. Will this be the point where someone is, uh, where someone finally faces consequences, do you think? Or, uh, what do you th what do you see in the immediate future regarding this uh, particular development? Well, we we have a, one of the articles we can put in the show notes is the Appendix C from our editor in chief's book, America Under Attack: Was the Coronavirus Engineered? Uh, which makes the very bold claim that it was actually Barack Obama and his administration that were the driving force behind engineering uh, this coronavirus. Uh, and so these, uh, the Obama administration is at least equally as guilty as the Chinese Communist Party, perhaps even more guilty than the Chinese Communist Party uh, in this instance. And, uh, and that does make it harder to get justice uh, 
accomplished on this scandal if it was just the Chinese Communist Party bamboozled the American government, it would be fairly easy for lawmakers to throw the Communist Party under the bus uh, and expose everything we know. Uh, the government, because itself is complicit in the research, is doing everything it can to keep this classified. Uh, actually, both houses of Congress, the Senate and the House of Representatives uh, about a week ago voted on a bill that would basically declassify all U.S. government documents regarding the, the origins of COVID-19. Uh, Joe Biden still has not signed it and won't even commit to whether he's going to or not. And so he's he's kind of dragging it out. Normally you either veto it or sign it. Well, right now he's just letting it sit on his desk and collect dust for a while. Uh, and so we'll see if he eventually signs that. But it's it's very suspicious, the fact that how much the Biden administration <laughs> does not want America to figure out what happened with COVID-19. There uh, is something very dangerous and very corrupt going on with how how that originated. And as you say, there are bold claims about that very uh, that very issue in America under attack. Listeners can go to americaunderattack.com. Uh, it has its own website, americaunderattack.com. That booklet, which has been updated and is being updated again and produced as a hardcover, uh, is available at americaunderattack.com. So that's U.S. agencies double build for bioweapons research in Wuhan. Look for that by Andrew Miller at thetrumpet.com. And that's our show for today. Email us your thoughts on the program at letters at thetrumpet.com. We do love to hear from you, letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Mihailo Zekic, and Richard Palmer. Thanks to Nick Irwin and Jesse Hester for engineering and production. I'm Philip Nice, and that is your Week in Review for today's Trumpet Hour. Thanks for joining us.